Art of the Cut is brought to you by FilmTools.com, your one-stop shop for production and post-production gear. Be sure to listen for an exclusive site-wide offer later in the show. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today I'm talking with Adam Bosman, editor of the feature film Enola Holmes, which is available now on Netflix. Hopefully it's on its way to becoming a franchise, with Millie Bobby Brown as the sister of the famed detective Sherlock Holmes. Adam's previous work includes TV series like The Crown, The War of the Worlds, New Blood, Perot, and he was an additional editor on the TV miniseries The Deep, among many others. So tell me about this opening title sequence. It's got footage in it. So how did that get constructed? It was quite an evolution. We spent a long time working out exactly what the title sequence should look like. And the basis of it is all in Jack's script. But it was a lot more compressed. It was a lot simpler. It was essentially the bike ride, a couple of pieces to camera, and then she was at the station. And what we realized quite early on was that while it was really exciting to be dropped into this world with the inciting incident almost having taken place off screen as an audience you you didn't fully connect with Enola's problem when you hadn't had a chance to meet mother you hadn't had a chance to get to know the world that she lost emotionally we didn't feel that loss because we hadn't seen any of it so we needed to expand expand the world and the title sequence just felt like that was the perfect place to do it. And I mean, the, the whole thing was a, a huge evolution in terms of how much we use graphics, how much we use flashbacks. A lot of the material in that opening actually came later uh, during additional photography. Uh, a lot of the material with both young Enola and with Millie and Helena together, that all came sort of further down the line because we needed to expand it. And then obviously the the family photograph, the kind of uh, Monty Python-esque, Gilliam-esque sort of family photograph, all of that, it, it just it felt like we needed to build up this world in order to then yank it away from her without having any sense of what that world was. We didn't really feel for her. We didn't feel for her loss. Because in preparation for this, I went back to the script and I was sort of reading what the first draft of it was. And it's amazing how that really expanded to become the sequence that you see today. So interesting, though, that, that it required a lot of reshoots or it required some additional footage. Jack's writing is is wonderful. The dialogue is beautiful. The characters are, are unique. Um, and it's also really unconventional in an exciting way. And what he was going for and what we all fell in love with was keeping Mother as this mystery character, holding her back. And really, in the first pass and principal photography, we didn't see Helena half as much as we do in the final film. She was a much more enigmatic glimpsed really through Enola's memories and through referring back to pertinent points that she had made to her across her childhood that then became useful as the film progressed. It was fascinating for her to be this enigmatic character, but we realised she could still be that and she could still be more present, uh, more present as a parent, more present as a character for our audience, that we could start to fall in love with her in order to, again, feel the the, the loss that Enola felt when she left. The additional photography was sort of scattered throughout. There wasn't a huge amount, but it was it was very sort of carefully placed, just allowing us glimpses into Mother's life and into her life with Enola before she walked out the door. That's so interesting. It reminds me kind of of the, the problem that Pietro Scalia had on The Martian, where 
the, the structure of that originally, they figured out that it wasn't enough to get the audience to care. So they flipped what was a flashback of the Martian storm and put it at the beginning because that way it allowed you, the audience to learn about the characters, care about them, and then love them for the rest of the movie. That is exactly it. At, at its heart, it's it's all about emotion. Whether you invest in a story or not really comes down to how much you invest in the characters and how much you care about their plight. The cold open was brilliant. And I think we preserved that by dropping a smack bang into Anola's bike ride. I mean, Harry conceived that shot, that tracking shot that heads across the fields and then she turns to look at the camera. He described that to me when we I think day one when we agreed to do this project together and, and it was that's that surprise that kind of gut punch of oh she's gonna talk to us we, he was really keen that we preserved that because that the DNA of that was in was in Jack's script and um, and what we needed to do was preserve the surprise of that preserve the kind of the unique nature of that and yet expand the world bring more breadth to it obviously it's a Nola story but mother is present throughout you know even when she's not there she's there it's about her i mean obviously until we head off in a different direction but we needed we felt like we needed to see her as well and that's and that's where all those other elements came into play the graphics the photograph the flashbacks it all started to meld together and it and it sets out the stall for the film as well the the energy the kind of hyperkinetic sort of style of it as well we felt again dropping the audience into that unapologetically just like this is where we're going this is what we're doing you know come along for the ride that that felt like the right choice to make yeah no i love that and uh you were talking about that connection with the characters and how that the characters and that emotion is so important i read this great uh quote yesterday that i wanted to throw in here ray bradbury says plot is no more than footprints left in the snow after your characters have run by on their way to an incredible destination that is perfect. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. See, that's that's what I would have said, Steve, if I was more articulate. Yeah, me too. That's why I had to steal the quote. Just go back and I'll say that again. <laughs> okay, okay. That's that's exactly it, isn't it? I mean, the plot, whatever it is, whether it's you know, it's a, a mystery or it's a thriller or it's a drama, it it all hinges on you connecting with the characters, and and without that, as good as the plot is, it, it goes for nothing. You know, you have to care. At, at its heart, that's a that's at the heart of everything that Harry does. I think it, it's all about emotion. It's all about truth for him, and that was just. In those opening, and we had that in spades, you know, through throughout the film. But just in that opening, because there was so much energy, because we were asking the audience to invest very quickly, we felt that we just needed to expand it, expand the world. Like we went back to the opening again and again and again, which I don't think is unique. Obviously, you always want to that those first moments really sing, but it evolved in a way that. Uh, a lot of sequences in the film, well, they all evolved, but the additional material was was really kind of focused in that first that first act, certainly. That's so interesting to think about that evolution and how, you know, you, maybe you got to a point later in the movie where you're like, I really don't care about this. And then not to think that the problem was later on in the movie, but to think the problem was at the beginning of the movie. I mean, that's always a difficult uh, to get that perspective on things, to step right back, because especially when you're involved in the minutiae of the scene to scene and being able to see the big picture and actually go, that's where it went wrong. And I think we we sort of tracked it because the first act, the first kind of 
20 minutes or so, there was enough going on that it sustained our interest. But then just at the point where she sets off on her adventure should be the point of most excitement. And it was the point where we started to lose focus. And that's what made us realize that we, we knew that everything around that was working really well and the train sequence was exciting and the meeting with Tewkesbury was great and all of that and we just were, were really trying to get to grips with okay but why aren't we why aren't we invested in her why aren't we being swept along on day one of her adventure what what's gone wrong and that went all the way back to the first few moments and it was electric once once additional photography was underway and even before additional photography was underway we started blocking it out we started trying things putting in the photograph that was that came quite late in the day, the family photograph. As soon as we started adding those elements in, the whole thing kind of came to life. I love it. It's a great process. I love that it is a process, you know, that you don't have to say, oh, well, our movie's what it is. You know, you're like, no, our movie's what we want to make it be. Completely. Yeah, completely. And that, I, I guess that being that this was my first feature, that was a big part of the shift for me. I've always kind of felt like try and sort of push the material as far as I possibly can. But having the scope, the scale and the time to really push it in a number of different directions, really interrogate it and and then to have ideas that can involve bringing back your principal cast uh, returning to locations, having the luxury to do that was huge. And I'd experienced it to an extent on The Crown as well, because obviously the, the scale and ambition of, of that show comes very close, if, if not the same as, as features. It was really rewarding to know that, as you say, that we don't have to settle, that we're like, we know there's a problem here and let's fix it. And, and Legendary were, were so supportive of that. You know, from the get-go, if there was... If we need it, whatever we needed to really make this story sing, everyone was on board with that. That's great. I love it. I'm really big on talking about intercutting and there's a really interesting intercutting scene. I would like to know how similar it was to the scripted or did you combine multiple scenes into a kind of into one, which is the intercutting of the billiard scene at the beginning. The brothers are talking about sending their sister off to a boarding school. And as they're talking, the headmistress is already driving down the road and they haven't even finished the discussion. Talk to me a little bit about that scene. Well, credit where credit's due. That was all down to a wonderful editor called Elliot Eisman, who was assisting me while we were in LA. And we were there for a couple of weeks. I, I always try to operate quite open, collegiate, cutting room atmosphere and encourage my assistants to do their own assemblies. I mean, and often it's selfish, you know, I'm like, there's a, a breadth of material coming in. I'm just really keen to see what other people can bring to it as well. We were sort of reworking the show. We were out in LA for a couple of weeks and we'd finished Harry's director's cut. We'd just done the first screening. We sat down and watched it with Legendary and we were answering their notes and kind of preparing for the additional photography that we all knew was coming. Elliot just wandered in and the billiard scene always was conceived as these two guys deciding the fate of this young girl, batting these balls around the table while they were batting her around these different possibilities and really having ownership of her. And she was she was remote. She was listening in. Uh, she was at the door. There was also coverage of her sitting on the stairs and then moving towards the door and she was getting closer and closer and closer. It was a very self-contained scene. And, and it was wonderful. And Henry and Sam did some wonderful work and the writing was fantastic. And it had a real kind of energy to it, but it weighed down the opening by, by itself because it is a Nola story. When you're away from her, even if she was there listening remotely, it just acted as a bit of a break on the story. 
And and we were battling with this and we were cutting it down and we were cutting it down and we were getting it tighter and tighter and tighter. And um, yeah, and Elliot just sort of stuck his head through the door and said, I know there's a timeline here that you're not messing with, but have you tried this? And I was just like, give it a go. So he did his first pass on it and it, it didn't work, but it was brilliant. The genesis of the idea was brilliant. And then we just bounced it backwards and forwards. You know, I did some bits on it. He did some bits on it. We played around with it and we had to rewrite. We had to change the lines so that it felt like it was natural, organic intercut rather than just that it had been crowbarred in there. That came completely from him, you know. And again, that goes back to what you said about sometimes you need that you need to step back. You need to have the fresh eyes. And when you're knee deep in it, it's um, sometimes it's hard to see what the solution is, whether it's a simple one or not. But that, that was a brilliant idea. And yeah, we ran with it. I, I love the fact that so many good creative people, I think, are good and creative because it doesn't matter where the good idea comes from. You just you're like, that's a good idea. Oh, totally, totally. I mean, it has to be collegiate, doesn't it? At the end of the day, no no one has the answers. No one has the, the right way through this. There's a myriad of different ways of cutting things. I always feel when I get to the end of something, for the most part, it's like that we did our best work there. That is as good as we can make this. But there's always that nagging doubt. Is there something I missed? Is there, you know, is there another way through this because of course there is you know there's um there's a thousand possibilities so throwing those doors open and inviting new ideas is is the only really way to to get the best out of the material and also it's just it's just great to get an alternative viewpoint you know we're all we're all subjective about this stuff and you can always go back to the way it was i mean cut a new way yeah that doesn't exactly there's literally there's literally nothing to lose so um i, I yeah i'm 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 all for that uh I mean, it does. It comes with a cost, obviously, because then you know you find really good assistants, and then they're cutting, and then suddenly they're editing, and you've got to find another really good assistant. <laughs> but there's loads of really good assistants, and it's yeah, it, uh, it all works out for the best. Yeah, I hope people are able to go watch that scene again because it is so light and fun and unexpected to watch the intercutting is it like really lifts it. And if anything, instead of pulling it down, it's it's amplifying it and buoying it. I really like it. Whether it worked or not, it was more that the idea worked for the film because up until that point, we'd been really wedded to the, the narrative that this is a Nola story. So we're with her. It's a very linear structure, really, other than the flashbacks, which were originally conceived as very small moments and they really expanded but other than those which are still taking place within the scene the timelines um are quite linear and we weren't messing with that so to it was it was a bit of a leap for us to embrace that but it yeah again it it felt it felt very right it's just one of those things so you know suddenly it unlocks something and you didn't even know that there was a door that needed to be unlocked and then it's thrown open and you're like right yeah let's let's Perfect. walk through that and so in in the original cut they play billiards and then you cut directly to the woman showing up, the headmistress showing up in the car or no? Yeah, exactly. And 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 then and she arrived and she had the scene with Mycroft outside. So Fiona and Sam had that little interaction and you saw the flirtation begin. Um, and then there was the dressing scene and, and it was all, it was, I mean, it was very linear. And every scene in itself was was great. They were really beautiful moments within them. You know, there was so much energy in the opening, even before it evolved to where it ended up, it still had that kinetic energy to it. And then you got back to Ferndale and it felt like the brakes had just been thrown on this film. We needed to find a way of preserving all those moments that were great about those scenes, 
but getting through them with the same energy that we'd already started to fall in love with. We used it again and again in a few other places just to kind of um, to keep Enola present even when she wasn't. Tell me a little bit about temp score. What did you temp with or when you were preparing for this? Did you go, oh, we should look at some Harry Potter or did you look at we should look at some other Holmes movies? I mean, what was the thought? Interesting that you mentioned both of those. We decided very much to steer clear. We we had a wonderful music editor, uh, Ben Smithers, on this, who uh, did some great work. I mean, he was just tireless providing us with temp score and obviously daniel was was on uh daniel pemberton the composer was on from uh, quite early on but he was tied up on other projects and he'd provided a few sketches but um but it was really down to ben and i to kind of thrash our way through it but what we didn't want to do was we did really didn't want to tie it to any particular style because we wanted, we knew it was going to be, music was going to be key to this. We wanted to make sure that we avoided temp love, you know, which is really dangerous. This is a very roundabout way of saying we didn't pick on anything particular. We just tried to head for the emotion, tried to head for the right energy, and we left the left it quite quite open for Daniel. He came on fully on sort of towards the end of Harry's director's cut. So at that point, he was already starting to feed stuff in. And then when it came, I mean, he's just a machine. It just, there's just swathes of it coming. And and it was very much a dialogue then, you know, we were, we were bouncing stuff backwards and forwards. I mean, a huge part of why that opening is as successful as I think it is, is, is down to that that score when he hit on that he he was on the phone to me and he was just like oh i've got it i listened to this this he he described it as having the magic of a pop song the kind of like the perfect encapsulated energy um and shape of a pop song and he was like i i love this this is enola it everything informed everything else that so we we really did um yeah we ran with that yeah i loved the i loved a lot of the temp and some of the temp is really interesting it's not for whole scenes sometimes it it, it was just like a few little notes almost like it was a a little a very short cues sometimes i mean part of the elegance of what daniel does is that they all either refer back to something you've already heard or they're foreshadowing something you're gonna hear and you don't necessarily know the significance of it yet but it'll all come together i think there's there's a beautiful elegance to the way that those those cues evolve and of course, he can take something that was exciting, was dramatic, was scary, he can rearrange it and he can bring the heart to, to the foreground and suddenly it's making you well up and yet the, the theme remains the same. For instance, Dash, the little pine cone, had his own cue and there's, there's traces of the Dash cue scattered throughout, yeah, which is really great to hear. Talk to me a little bit about I'd call it landscaping or the idea of dynamics from music where you've got very high energy scenes like the train scene, for example. And then that goes into a very pastoral, much more pastoral quiet after that, that you're you're getting these ebbs and flows through the movie. Some of that is in the script, obviously, but some of it has got to be you as an editor bringing things down a little bit. We worked quite hard early on on establishing, in a funny sort of way, a cutting rhythm for each character, which is not so much about the energy of individual scenes, but it did feel a natural way to go to try and mark these three very disparate characters, Anola, Sherlock and Mycroft, with a different style for each of their scenes. And uh, Anola obviously has this hyperkinetic, energetic it's verging on frantic and that i mean the the jump cutting all came from her it was like that there's this 
brilliant to her, but it's chaotic as well. It's uncontrolled, it's untapped, you know, which is obviously what mother wants from her. And then Sherlock has the same thing. It's brilliant and it's fast, but it's much more controlled. And then Mycroft had this elongated sort of protracted kind of rhythm where almost to the point of you really wanted to cut because let's get away from this guy. That was my original idea. And obviously you, you can't be prescriptive about something like that because, you know, you have to respond to the material, you have to respond to the scenes. But my original thought was that we would, almost like the three of them were different instruments. We'd have to kind of weave that all through together. And sometimes it was a location thing. When we got to the finishing school that Harry and I felt very strongly that that should almost have a kind of staccato militaristic sort of rhythm. And he got that wonderful shot of the girls marching down the stairs in step and and that became and and Daniel fell in love with that idea as well it was like right let's 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 feel the drudgery of that world the constraints of that world you know and how that plays against everything else that Anola's experienced up until this point. So we took those those different ideas, those sort of cutting rhythms, and then we applied those to the scenes as it felt right. Um, and again, you couldn't be prescriptive about it. When Sherlock and Anola are in a scene together, who's leading the scene? You know, whose rhythm is it? You have to you have to respond to the material and 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 feel the internal rhythm of the scene. But that gave us um, gave us permission in a way to kind of play fast and loose with these these different energies and that was very early on that was an assembly stage and then when you bring it all together obviously you end up with this cacophony of noise and you're just trying to then marshal where is that working where is it not i mean some things are natural you picked up the pastoral scene i just saw that tracking shot following the two of them through the that beautiful countryside and i was just like i want to hear this i want to experience this with them you know we we don't need score over this, regardless of whether we've come from the excitement or not. Let's just be in this natural world with them. It's very hard, I think, until you see everything together to know whether you've created one beautiful piece of music or a mess. <laughs> and, and obviously it's never as simple as that. It's always some bits are beautiful and some bits are, and then you just start adjusting. But you, but without the quiet, you don't feel the noise. You know, it's, it's light and dark and you, you, you have to find a balance somewhere. And and like you said, you you weren't prescriptive because I can think of another, a scene where Enola's up in a in a tree drawing and Holmes comes over and visits her, and that scene is not manic, and it, yet it contains the two manic people. Yeah, my my assistants would love to hear about the Sherlock tree. I <laughs> I think I cut the Sherlock tree on and off for about two months. I mean, there was so much coverage. Of, of that tree and it was wonderful the scene itself was three times the length maybe four times the length originally and we, we definitely needed that breath we needed the two of them together but it, it was too long there was too much said the two of them were great Hen Henry and Millie were fantastic in it really bouncing off each other but again it was one of those ones where it's like there's, there's so many ways through this because is it is it Sherlock's scene is it Enola's scene really it's about the two of them it's about their first real meeting of minds. I mean, you know, last time he saw her, she was a toddler. Finding the, the balance of that became way more important than some preconceived idea about, you know, who has what rhythm. So that's, I guess that's what I mean when I say I couldn't be prescriptive about it. It was a 
a conceit in a way, and it worked to our uh, great advantage in certain places, but other, other times we had to abandon it altogether. Sure. And I, I can think of a place where it probably did work in that methodology, which early on in the film, Enola makes a, an explosive discovery. This is when she figures out that her mother has left her a message. And there's a lot of jump cutting in there, and Enola's brain is going like a mile, million miles an hour. She's like, I'm on to something, right? And so that pacing of that scene feels like that. That was a, a clear case where we were like, right, we need to be in her shoes, feeling that building excitement, feeling that that building energy. And there's a case in point for that would be deciphering, you know, using the tiles to decipher the first coded message that mother leaves her. I've mentioned already that for Harry, emotion and truth are like the, his, his two touchstones that he always comes back to. And there was a conceit quite early on that when we were with Anola and she was deciphering messages, she was cracking code, she was solving crimes, that we'd enter a sort of VFX world. We'd see letters floating on screen as she unscrambled these things and everyone was really excited about it and it was Harry bless him who was put a halt to that and was like I want I want to see her do this in a real world fashion so the tokens came from him but obviously we then had to find a way to make that exciting and energetic because watching someone move scrabble pieces around and I, I was directing the second unit when we did the the close-ups of the tiles and we were doing it for like a day because we had a really we had a really clear idea of how this was going to happen. And it worked. Jane Houston, our brilliant script supervisor, and I had sort of thrashed it out. And the assistants and I had cut out big letters and we had arranged them on the floor of the cutting room and we had kind of slid them around so we knew exactly how this was going to happen. And I was shooting that with the second unit and they were, bless them, they were just like, is this like a, a blockbuster film about Scrabble? Because <laughs> it's like a full day on these pieces. But it all came together in the cutting room. It was worth it, I think. I hope. <laughs> You'd have to tell me. I think it, I think it was. It's very interesting that that there was a different way to attack it, which was more like like a beautiful mind, right? I like the fact that you didn't do that. It's a period piece. Let's see it in real world. I think it's really interesting that you directed the second unit. Joe Walker directed second unit of Blade Runner 2049 for a bunch of stuff. I think that's a really smart thing, right? A lot of times you're editing pieces. <laughs> a lot of times second unit is like, they're pieces of things the editor needs. Why not have the editor do them so he knows what he's doing? Didn't getting? direct it all. We, we had a, a brilliant second unit director as well early on. It was, it was more towards the end and throughout additional photography. I kind of feel actually... Steve, like it was Harry's attempt to make me learn my lesson because I'm always <laughs> calling and asking for new stuff and saying, you know, could we get this? Could we get that? Why didn't you get this? And wouldn't it be great if eventually I think he just went, fine, you do it. Come on, put your money where your mouth is. And that was the first time I've done that. And I mean, it was really exciting, but it was also it was a, a steep learning curve for me as well. It's really easy to sit back in the cutting room and just demand this, that and the other. And well, why didn't you do that? And I am one for kind of talking to myself and other members of the crew and like, you know, pull focus, shift there, track there. Why is the, come on, come on, come on. So actually having to then be on the other side of that and make all that happen was, uh, yeah, was, yeah, challenging. But it was, it was good. You know, at the end of the day, I think, I think we did get some good material out of it. I mean, the, the key to that was for those sequences, like the deciphering sequences, Harry already knew exactly how that was going to play out. But what he was adamant about was that we couldn't paralyze Millie's performance by trying to tie her into hitting some 
essentially quite abstract marks. So it became about giving her the DNA of what she was supposed to be achieving and then letting her energy flow and then coming back and going, okay, well, what did she do? Because she's a really instinctive performer with some brilliant comic timing. And often there'd be something that none of us had conceived uh, that would come out of the scene. And we were like, well, that's the moment, you know, like, so when she looks at the camera doing the deciphering and she's like, bear with me, that was, we were just like, right, well, we have to have that. So let's see what she was doing at that moment. And then let's make the rest of the material work around it. So it did make sense for those beats where there's some actual, there's some quite technical stuff going on to not cripple the main unit with trying to make sure that all this makes sense when we can just let the energy flow, let her performance flow, let really free her to do what she does so brilliantly. And then we can come back to it later and, and we can pick up the bits we need and make it truthful as well. And as I say, that was really key to Harry. So even though we skipped through those cipher sequences and they're over, actually, if you go back and you watch them frame by frame, if anyone has the patience or the inclination to do that, it does make sense. They're, they're real ciphers and she's really solving them. I'm working on a, or I worked on a, uh, a film where I had the same thing where I was like complaining about the shooting or the directing. And eventually they said, well, we think you should do all the reshoots. I'm like, oh, now I'm, now I've done myself in. So maybe, maybe they're just trying to give me, as you said, they're trying to, you know, give you some of your own medicine. Like, okay, if he's going to complain about it, let's make him do yeah, it. Yeah, com completely. Yeah. Get down here, pick up a camera, hold the boom, do it all. Yeah. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Adam Posman. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. This week, FilmTools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on FilmTools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on FilmTools.com. So whether you need a GTEC hard drive or an Airy Sky panel, make sure to head over to FilmTools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now back to my interview with Adam Bosman. This was a question I had before we discussed the fact that a lot of the memory stuff was uh, in additional photography. How did you organize that? I'm assuming that it wasn't per scene, so they weren't slated as, hey, this is scene four flashback. It was, here's the mother in this uh, flashback scene, and then you had to go grab stuff as you wanted it. Backtracking slightly, there, there were a lot of flashbacks in, in the original script. And Jack's idea, which was really elegantly executed, was that essentially the mother had equipped Enola with these the tools that she needed to go out into the world, hence why she left her on her 16th birthday, and that she felt that she was ready now to confront the world. And so some of that was practical, some of it was the fighting skills or the science skills or the history lessons. Um, and some of it was just the knowledge that Mother had imparted to her. So a lot of the flashbacks as they were originally scripted were memories of Mother saying something that was particularly apposite for the moment that Enola was in. And a lot of them stayed where they were originally intended because they worked beautifully. But some of them 
moved, not because they weren't working where they were, but there was an opportunity to do something else with them or create another moment, a different moment with them. And um, so, for instance, the, the science experiment where Mother teaches her to blow stuff up was originally intended for the arrival in London when Enola first walks down that busy street. And that was a very different sequence as first conceived because that was a big number to camera. Essentially, she walked through the streets and she was addressing the camera all the way through. And within that, there were flashbacks to Mother. And we, you know, we kept one of them because we kept the apple tree that takes you in where Mother talks about the world, time enough for the world. We, we kept that in its original place. But the explosion, I mean, it the rushes for that arrived and... I just immediately knew that that had to go in the bomb factory. I was just like, we we have to see that alongside this discovery of the bombs. So I picked up, and, and ordinarily with that stuff, I kind of, I park it and I'll try it later down the line. I don't like to go too far with cutting stuff right down or restructuring at that early stage because sometimes it can have exactly the wrong effect that you're hoping for and you know when people aren't expecting it, it can kind of rock them back in their seats especially a director who's lived with the script for so long but with this one i felt so strongly about it so i picked up the phone to harry and i was like hey, look, i'm going to do this just want to make sure that you don't freak out when you see the assembly and he was like yeah, we, we thought the same thing as we were shooting it. And he and he and Jane had basically just shot it out and then reached exactly the same conclusion. And I think that was one of those ones where it just, as scripted, it felt perfect where it was. And then once it was shot, you just immediately knew where it had to go. It wasn't clear cut. A lot of the flashbacks were as scripted and were shot. A lot of them stayed where they were. A lot of them moved. And then some of them were just about either reusing the material that we already had to create a different feeling. For instance, the, I got a lot of mileage out of the material that was shot of Helena and Sophia, who played Young and Ola painting together. And that was beautiful. That location was beautiful. And it was a really intimate moment between the two of them. And obviously there's the subtextual elements of how important Mother's paintings are throughout the film. I scattered that in a few different places, but sometimes we, you know, we needed something more and that's where the additional photography came in. That reminds me of a really cool edit that I loved. I don't know how many people would even have noticed that it's an edit, but you're, you're on the mom, you're looking down kind of the a rack of the two of them and the mom's in the front and Enola's in the back and the rack focus has an edit in the middle of it, or it's not a full, it is such a cool edit. That is definitely one of those cases where I was just like, I'm really not supposed to do this. I mean, there's kind of like, there's nothing about my experience as an editor that tells me that I will ever be able to get away with this. But hey, let's try it. I mean, if I if I can't get away with something like that in this film, I, I'll never be able to get away with it. Because also it was two different takes. So that was just something else to say about it. I tried it and then I just fell in love with it. And I, I was just like, you know what, let's... I, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna drop that one in front of Harry and I'm not even gonna mention it and and we'll see what happens. And of course he picked up on it because he picks up on everything, but he went with it. He he bought it as well. Yeah, that was a, a tricky one to to pull off. And I see it every time I watch it because I'm so kind of aware. And that was very much one of those days where it's like a frame here, a frame there, frame here, frame there, you know, really interrogated that one for a while. But I'm glad I'm glad, I'm glad that you picked up on it and that it works. I believe it. I, I think it does work. I really do. It's it's an unusual choice. And I bet most people that are casual viewers, they didn't even register, my guess is. But I really liked it. I mean, that if that's the case, then I'd say job done. I, I never really want uh, to draw attention. And obviously, 
this film more than most really wears its cutting on its sleeve still you you want to be swept along in the the energy of the sequence rather than kind of be distracted by individual cuts so i'm i'm glad that i'm really glad that that worked yeah and there were a couple of other sort of unconventional edits in there there's there's a few flash frames that um we left in cheeky surprises for people that i don't know if have been picked up on yet but they're in oh come on well now we need to know no i can't do it i mean i gotta <laughs> let people hunt them out we're gonna make me watch the entire movie 20 times yeah frame okay. frame okay. by frame, frame, frame steve <laughs> they're in they're in uh they're in the right place there were a few there were a few little uh cheeky easter eggs along the way i mean ha- harry was really keen about that is part of the kind of um the sort of the joyous eccentricity he, he had the word eccentric written in big letters on the wall of the cutting room we felt permitted to try things like that and um yeah there's there's a few a few of those in there well i the my myself and my post team and the vfx team and harry actually all make an appearance at one point as well when she's talking about the the gentlemen of the royal academy who have never let women in um, that's us we're the gentlemen of the royal academy <laughs> so that was a another nice little thing where we felt like the kind of the playfulness of the film really started to expand out into the world of the filmmaking as well and that was yeah that was delightful to be a part of which scene got shot first the bomb factory or the flashback the flashback so it was very early on as soon as i saw it i I knew that's where it belonged. I mean, that's why I picked up the phone to Harry because he was going to be expecting to see that in, well, I thought he was going to be expecting to see that in his assemblies. And he, he's, um, he's a very trusting director. So he doesn't, he doesn't ask for assemblies on a very regular basis unless there's, unless there's a problem or unless there's something that he's concerned about, then he's very happy to just let me do my thing. I wanted to flag that one with him specifically because I just immediately thought that's going somewhere else. It wasn't as much about seeing that it would fit into that scene because I didn't know where exactly or how I was going to kind of marshal that transition. It was more that just from a story point of view, I was like, well, we're at that moment. We're at the the moment where Enola really learns something new about Mother and something that she wasn't expecting and something that potentially could be quite terrifying. And we're not seeing Mother. And I wanted to do that. And I wanted to, I, I was kind of trying to imagine what it would be like to be a child suddenly confronted with the other side of your parent. It's a story about growing up, really. Um, and and I know that Jack felt this as well. A big part of growing up is about learning that your parents are fallible, that you know they're not these godlike people that you might think they are when you're younger. It's that they're just people. They come with their own foibles and their own darkness. And that moment felt like that's when that happens. So we, you know, she's she's driving towards that all the way, but then that's that's the twist. So, and it really felt like we need to mark that. And there was something rewarding about seeing them together in this essentially really innocent moment, but twisting that and, and seeing that now through the prism of what we've learned about Mother. Where was he expecting the, the chemistry stuff or the explosive stuff to show up? Before she got her costume on, before she dressed up as Ivy. So I just after she's left Tewkesbury, he's headed off and then she walks down that street just before she goes to the dress shop. It was more about what Mother said to her and it was less about what they were doing together. It was about the lesson that Mother was imparting and not that they were doing chemistry. Helena's a really exciting, improvisational kind of performer and that laugh and the clapping of the hands and the let's do it again none of that was scripted and and it all just felt perfect there are a number of moments in the film that came from the actors feeling comfortable and free to 
play quite fast and loose with the scenes. So Helena and Millie both just gave me a myriad of really kind of playful and exciting opportunities to do stuff. And there's, uh, for instance, while Helena was doing the fight scene with Sophia, the girl who plays young Enola, she accidentally at one point caught her. It was a, an air punch, but she she clipped her. And Sophia went, ow! And of course, Helena and Sophia had this beautiful relationship by this point. It was really lovely seeing the two of them uh, on the rushes. And Helena was mortified and she ran in to give her a big hug and she was like, I'm so sorry. But it was a brilliant little moment, a really kind of like really truthful little moment. And as so we kept that in and there, there were loads of those through, throughout the film. It just added to the, the joyous sort of real feeling of their relationship. You mentioned uh, the stuff to camera. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the difficulties of breaking that fourth wall. Is there an edit trick to doing that or is it all on the, the performer? I felt very strongly that there was an editing trick to it. And when I first sat down with it, with the material from that, the, one of the first scenes was the arrival at the train station where she meets Sherlock and Mycroft. And obviously we've got a number of addresses to camera. And I was trying really hard to incorporate the moment that the wall breaks because I felt like it's such a, it's such a clear shift out of filmmaking grammar that we needed to see it happen. You know, ordinarily, like you'd need to see a rack focus happen, otherwise you get thrown. So I was like, we need to see this. That is one of the times when we did sit down and watch an assembly because we screened the assemblies, I think, in week two for Harry and the producers, Giles, the DOP. We were watching that sequence and, and afterwards, Harry said to me, he was like, just, you know, don't worry about being wedded to how the actor has broken the wall or how I've directed them to break the wall. And some of them were very conscious so, for instance, uh, in the field scene with Tewksbury where he refuses to say thank you and Anola looks over her shoulder, obviously you need that one because that's part of the comedy, the decision to bring us into that moment. But Harry was referencing Fleabag and saying that they had found that throughout the cutting of that, it, it was much more important to cut for the rhythm of the scene as you would normally, almost to disregard the fact that there's a fourth wall that's been broken and then see whether it works or not. And it was completely the right call to make because once you're going along with it, once you've established it, which he did in that first shot, in that track up to the bike, you know, once you've done it once, you're prepared for it. Your audience is prepared for it. They know that it can happen at any point. And it didn't matter whether we cut to Enola addressing a character to the reverse, then back to her and now she's addressing us. We went with it. We went along with it. And it was much more important to, to feel the rhythm of the scene than to try and clearly signpost these moments, with the exception of the ones that, you know, worked best for seeing the fourth wall break. Like Tis I was another case in point where that was just hilarious. Um, there were en endless hilarious versions of that where she turned to us and said, Tis I. Um, and really that, that works because we saw it happen. Normally, when you break the fourth wall, it's to say something. You actually address, that's the first shot, right? She's riding the bike and she turns and talks to the audience. But some of them that are really nice, there's no address. It's just to bring you into it. Like, I think there's one with, with uh, Tewksbury where he, like he's asked her to go gather firewood or something and you're starting to realize that she kind of likes him. Okay, maybe, maybe he's cute or something. And she just looks at the camera like, hmm, interesting. 
<laughs> yeah, it's a love. It's a lovely moment. That is, I think that's the kind of key thing. Exactly what you've picked up on. That it's the evolution of our relationship with her. That it's not just a cute way of narrating her story. It's that we've started to develop a connection with her. And the other one I really loved, and I fought strongly for, was um, after Tewksbury has been shot, and after she's cradling him. And then he comes back to life. And there was this extraordinary take where he stood up and she looked down the barrel at us and there was tears and anger and fury at what's just happened and relief and confusion. And it was and it was such a privileged insight into her character at that point. And it wasn't about it wasn't about communicating with us anything other than just her hurt and shock. Uh, and relief and I just I just found it extraordinary and extraordinarily powerful and we hadn't intended in that scene to have any pieces to camera because it felt like this is about the internal tension of the scene and we don't want to drag anyone out of it but that moment I thought really sang and we kept it in and I think that's that's part of the evolution of that journey that by that point you feel like you've earned it you know that we are complicit in this story that we're invested in her fully that we can just share a really powerful moment like that in silence with and feel part of it jump cuts we talked a little bit about those but you established those early early on in in the film which i think you always have to do right with jump cuts you need to know in this universe it's okay to do it yeah yeah completely that very much came from the energy of millie's performance it really lends itself to that and daniel was a huge part of that as well because executing a successful jump cut is often as much about the sound as it is about the visuals of the cut and whether it's the music or the sound design and we had a fantastic sound design team on this i mean the sound team across the board were great and were feeding in early versions of things really early on which just let us then expand that world and we were using again going back to trying to stay true to the world but marking stuff in a either for comedy effect or to help with the cut we tried to use the the diegetic sounds of the world to as sound design elements so there's a lot of i mean the obvious examples are some of the train whistles and steam releases from carriage that sort of thing they hopefully they're not so present that they yank you out of the moment but they are very precisely placed to mark a cut or to mark a moment or to act as punctuation at the end of a bit of dialogue. I think there's one example where we uh, the, the the hero music is crescendoing at the train station when Enola is first about to meet Sherlock and Mycroft and then they just sweep past and the crescendo just trails out. And and Daniel, I asked Daniel to like provide us with a click track and mark the point where he would, if there was another note, if there was a kind of a coda to that crescendo, where it would go. And then we put a big release of steam at that point just to kind of mark it. So there were a number of points like that. And again, with the with the jump cuts, finding a way in and out of them with sounds was was really helpful. They came from the from the character and from the story. It, it felt like that's her that's her internal energy hyperkinetic, hyper-energized, slightly chaotic and uncontrolled. So they really, the jump cuts really do belong to her. Yeah, that moment you were talking about, one, I did recognize the music at that point because, of course, she's about to meet her brothers and the music swells into this moment, this beautiful moment that the audience is going, they're finally going to, it's like the big hug, the two lovers running down the field and meeting each other and then the opposite thing happens that you think it's so great. I, I do have a question for you with that. I'm assuming there's coverage from her side because the way it's shot, you're on her back as the brothers walk towards you. 
Was there the reverse? Yeah, there is. Again, it felt like we we want to see that. And actually, Henry did this brilliant thing where he almost notices, you know, because he's just kind of like there's a, a tiny little look as he goes past. And it's like it did, did register, but he dismisses the thought. And I, I was just I was really keen that we we embrace that moment. That was also an interesting example of where the graphics came to play because the the graphics that illustrated what her eulogizing of Sherlock, that was all at, that none of that was scripted and we um we played around with a few different ideas there, but that, that all of those moments helped to sort of build this sense of the myth of him and and the significance of this moment all to then be undercut with that rug pull at the end and a lot of that came from matt curtis our graphic designer who who just provided some brilliant stuff all the way through those elements and as i say they came quite late in the process harry had originally talked about millie anola rather having a scrapbook a, a physical object that we would film again in keeping with his let's stay in the real world that she had filled with the cuttings and that we we could refer back to maybe it's got her maps in there and stuff and that was an idea he had quite early on so there was it was already the basis for playing with graphical elements but i don't think any of us expected that we would run with it in the way we did in those those first few moments but once you started bringing them in again it just felt right you know it felt like this is in keeping with the world so did you have some kind of temp graphics that you were using knowing that they were coming or did you have those scenes cut without graphics embarrassingly i did the first version of the temp graphics which will never ever see the light of day oh uh, i think i think we need a scratch uh assembly version that you give to art of the cut so that we can <laughs> well my original conceit for the sherlock graphic was the Vitruvian Man, Da Vinci's Vitruvian oh. Man, which I still quite like with, as she talks about his all his different skills, different arms appearing, you know, clutching a trumpet <laughs> and a violin and a, a boxing glove. And I, I did quite like that. But the, it was a wonderful opportunity to bring the Paget illustrations in and, and then, you know, and again, be playful with them. It was a backwards and forwards. I'd mock something up. I'd send it over to Matt. Matt would do something infinitely better, send it back. And then... I'd adjust the timing or or I'd adjust the sequence because often he'd done something that I wasn't expecting and it was great. And so I'd go, okay, well, let's create space for this or, you know, I'd, I'd motion affect it to change the timing somewhat, put markers in for him, send it back, he'd reissue it. So it was it was very much a back and forth. But he's he's just got a brilliant creative mind in his own right. He brought a huge amount of, of energy to that and... I think they fit seamlessly into the world of film now. They Now they feel just like a very natural part of that universe. But as I say, it, it all came quite far down the, um, the post-process when we realized that we, yeah, we needed to accelerate this storytelling, as I mentioned, all based on Harry's original thought about Enola's scrapbook. There was definitely a world where we were making Enola's scrapbook, and I think it would have been a, a beautiful thing. Maybe we will again. Produced by Millie Bobby Brown, that uh, producing title means a lot of things in a lot of movies. Did she give notes? What was her role? Yeah, she was she was watching cuts and she was feeding her thoughts back from via the producers. We had um, a wonderful producing team at Legendary. Ali Mendez was in the UK with us throughout the shoots and she was in the cutting room a lot. And once we went out to LA, Alex Garcia and Mary Parents as well were feeding in wonderful thoughts. And Millie was watching the same cuts and feeding her thoughts via Ali and via Alex and Mary. So, yeah, we were responding, I mean, to... 
obviously it's a it's a collaborative process she had really clear thoughts about the character about the direction the story should go and i think she liked the the way we took it you know she um it's obviously a project that she's means a huge amount to her um and uh hopefully we uh yeah we did it justice yeah uh so you moved from uh, London to LA at some point were you on Avid with a Nexus and all that stuff had to go or what was the deal yeah exactly yeah so we um it was it was only for a few weeks we the the bulk of the time we were based in London we were in Soho well we start during the assembly I was at Pinewood um and then we Farry's director's cut we moved back to Soho we were in Highworks above the Curzon which is great uh, there's something about cutting above a cinema that just feels really good <laughs> so we uh we were and we were there for the bulk of the time, but it just made sense for us after we did the director screening and for the first for the early preview to then be in LA, so we could respond a bit more quickly in the right time zone. Yes, yeah, so we did that for a few weeks, uh, and yeah, and then we returned to the UK for additional photography and a lot more cutting. Uh, last question for you, which is most of what you've done before is TV, where you're hitting you know act breaks are really important. Was this freeing to say, I don't have to hit an act break. This is wonderful. You know, I, that particular point hasn't actually occurred <laughs> to me. I mean, I, like obviously some, sometimes breaks are key, but a, a lot of the stuff that I've done has also felt like kind of mini self-contained films. And in fact, like the first thing that Harry and I worked on together, uh, Prisoner's Wives back in 2012, I think, 13 maybe felt very sort of cinematic in its ambition albeit in in a much smaller scale and i highly recommend that people look it out don't judge it by the title uh, it's a a, a really a really good show brilliantly written by julie geary and um it's got some some wonderful moments but it's all about charting that uh, internal story across like six episodes versus one two-hour feature that kind of it is freeing but it's also constraining in a different way because when you head towards the end of your episode you've kind of got the wherewithal the the luxury to go okay we, we know we're earning a pause here so we can hold some stuff back that we're going to pay off later we can build towards a crescendo that won't feel unnatural that's quite liberating there's it's almost like there's there's stuff that can happen in the black before the next episode if you, you know. no i totally no 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 i totally understand that right there's there's you know, when a commercial break happens and you come back, you're given a, uh, the audience can feel differently than if it was a film where you fade to black, you fade back up two seconds later and you're like, wait, well, I haven't really changed anything. But after a commercial break, you're like, oh. Completely. And it's part of the musicality that you referred to earlier as well, the, the rhythm of things, you know, it does, it creates a different shape. And, and I think that's probably where the, the light and dark comes into play, especially in terms of pace, because over a two-hour film or a 90-minute film or, a, you know, even a, like a 180, you, you, there's, you can build up to a breakneck speed, but you can't sustain that, you know, you can't. And and you have to then find a way of bringing the energy back down in order to earn the space to go back up again without the luxury of just stopping, you know, which is what the end of the episode for all the ad break gives you. TV in general is recently become so much more ambitious in scale, in scope, in budgets. I mean, the, the worlds are kind of merging. It's, um, yeah, it was, it was a huge privilege to work on this. And there was a, a, a lot of things that felt very different to me. But at its heart, it's still 
trying to tell a story in the best possible way. So your background with uh, the director was through previous TV shows that you'd cut for him. Yeah, we, uh, so that was, um, yeah, so Prisoners Wise, and we did uh, two series of that. And then, and then we tried to work together a number of times since, um, and it just hadn't meshed for boring, prosaic availability reasons. You know, we'd done a commercial together, but nothing like major. But obviously we kept in touch, we'd get on really well, and I think we're sort of kindred spirits in a way. Yeah, and when he approached me with this, um, it, it, yeah, it just felt such an exciting project to be involved with. 100%, and you nailed it. It's, Thank you. It was, I really love this film. Thanks for uh, editing it, and thanks for talking to me. No, not at all. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for your time. That's it for Art of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Adam Bosman. Also, special thanks to Dylan Giovanetto for editing this episode, and as always, to Paul McKenna for mixing and mastering this episode, and all previous episodes. Also, to Film Tools and Moviola for making this series possible. If this was a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend.